As you're having a seat, if you would turn with me to John chapter 4 this morning. And as you're turning in the Gospel of John to the fourth chapter, would you also take out the sheet entitled Sermon Notes in your together there? If you'll have that Sermon Notes before you there, I want to ask you to do something specifically with that in just a moment. John chapter 4 this morning. How did you get here this morning? How did you get here this morning? Now, I know, I mean, your first inclination is uh, to talk about what you drove to church in this morning or what you rode to church in. I'm not talking about the make and the model, the vehicle that got you here this morning. I know you're, you might be tempted to think that I'm, I'm kind of talking about a GPS routing. How, how did you get here? Did you take 31 this morning? Did you take 280 this morning? Did you take 65 this morning? Did you come down Broadway this morning? Did you walk here this morning? I'm not talking, I'm not talking about the roads that you took this morning. How did you get here this morning? Amen. God brought us. Now, what is the story? We, we know that God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, gives us the gift of faith in his sovereign plan. But do you know that he uses, he uses human lips? He uses human hands. He uses human hearts to share with us the, the wonderful truth that Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so. How did you get here this morning? Well, someone had the boldness. Someone had the love to share with you that wonderful truth. Uh, we're here in this sanctuary because someone shared with us the good news that Jesus saves. I want you in your sermon note insert to take it, to take a pen. I, I, want, I want us to do something this morning. I, I want us to just write down who were who the people in the village that shared with us that Jesus saves? Was it a Sunday school teacher who showed interest in you and shared with you the good news of the gospel? Was it a mother? Was it a father? I want you to write their name down. It might be one person. It might be a, a multitude of people. But I want you to write down that litany of people that shared with you Jesus saves and that God used to bring you to salvation. Maybe that's a youth pastor's name that you're going to write down this morning. Maybe there's a, a friend that you're going to write down. And the wonderful baptismal testimony, uh, we're hearing the story of a sister sharing with her brother. Who is on your list? Can I, can I tell you who's on my list? When I was six years old, my mom would take me aside, and some of my earliest memories were her reading this uh, children's picture Bible to me. My mom would be on that list. There's some friends of mine from uh, junior high days, eighth grade days that would be on that list because they invited me to walk with them to a church that was in walking distance of, of the junior high. I could play basketball after school at this church. Uh, those names would be on my list. 
You know who else would be on my list? A, a youth minister by the name of Harvey Ellis would be on that list. Because when I went to that church, for all the wrong reasons, and I wasn't going to the church looking to fill a God-shaped void in my life. I didn't know any of the need that I have. But when I got there, there, there was a youth pastor that kind of sort of took me under his wings and, and modeled to me Christian commitment, but also shared with me explicitly what the gospel was. Harvey Ellis would be on my list. You know who else would be on my list? Coach Greg Stegall would be on my list. He's my junior high, eighth grade football coach. I had him as a social studies teacher. But he was one of the first men outside of my family that I saw Christian commitment modeled. He, he was one of the first people that said these words to me. David, I want you to come to FCA. Coach, what is FCA? It doesn't matter. You're coming. Yes, sir. Greg Stegall would be on that list. Who's on, who's on your list? A dad's on your list. A mom's on your list. A sister's on your list. A friend's on your list. Maybe, maybe your spouse is on your list. Maybe a son or daughter is on your list. Maybe a grandfather or a grandfather or a grandmother. But maybe a better question this morning is, is decades from now, when the same question is asked, and, and, we, and, and, and someone says, uh, pull out your sermon notes, and I want you to write down how you got here. I want you to list who's going to write your name on their sheet of paper. Who in your family, who in your neighborhood, who in your workplace, who in the purview of your influence will write your name down? Not as the person that saved them, but the instrument that God used to share with them that wonderful truth that Jesus saves. How do we know this? Because Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me. So who will be writing your name on their list? God is sovereign. He does the saving, but he, in his sovereign plan, uses people like me and you as ambassadors of this good news. And so this morning, I, I want to free us up. I want us to be inspired by the model of our Savior to share that good news to the people that God gives us opportunity to, not only in the weeks to come, not only in the months to come, but in the lifetime to come for you and for me. In John chapter 4, we have one of the most memorable moments in Jesus' ministry where he comes into contact with a woman who was looking to fulfill and to satisfy her physical thirst. And Jesus, our Savior, says, let me tell you about water, water that will quench your every thirst. In John chapter 4, we read, starting in verse 1, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And then in verse 4, there, there's just this passing phrase. And he had to pass through Samaria. I, I want you to discover that Jesus shared... 
in this gospel-centered conversation, in this evangelistic encounter that Jesus shared intentionally. Now, he had to go through Samaria. Well, in actuality, he didn't have to go through Samaria. More than that, he shouldn't go through Samaria if he was to do what most first century Jews would have done as they were traveling from Judea to Galilee. They would have gone out of their way not to go to Samaria. Why? Because the Jews and the Samaritans were just arch rivals. Uh, you, do you think just in the 21st century that rivalry only revolves around Alabama and Auburn football? Well, heavens no. There, there's always been rivalry. There's always been people that say, you know, I would just rather not be with that group of people here. And for the Jews and the Samaritans, there's deep theological and historical roots of their rivalry here. 722 BC, we've got to go back a little bit. There is a group named the Assyrians. They swoop down into the southern kingdom called Samaria. And they swooped down in, and their military tactics were to deport the people of position and prestige, the Israelites that are living there. They deport them, and the leftovers intermarry with the captors, the Assyrians. So the Israelites come back from Babylon, and guess what happens? These Israelites look upon the Samaritans, the leftovers that are half-breeds, traitors, and they say, we don't want anything to do with them. The Samaritans, by this point, Jesus' day, they have another temple, they have other worship practices, so there's rivalry here. So Jesus did not have to go through Samaria. He went to Samaria intentionally because he knew that there was going to be a woman at that well. Jesus, after he's resurrected, he comes to his disciples and he says, Now I want you to wait in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. But I want you to be filled with the Spirit because you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and then guess where? Samaria in the uttermost parts of the earth. Now, Samaria is not just a geographical location. It is a spirit of intentional opportunity to share with those that may be different than us. Or more than that, it is, it is an invitation for us to realize that we will not share with someone unless we intentionally do that. There, there are a lot of things in life that you can accidentally do. But I tell you, those names that you wrote on your sheet of paper there, they did not accidentally share with you the good news of the gospel. Look at the names again. There was nothing accidental about the conversations that they had with you. There was an intentionality that they had. Now, you can accidentally say the wrong thing in a conversation. You can accidentally call someone by the wrong name. You can accidentally be walking and trip. You can accidentally do a lot of things, but you cannot accidentally have a gospel-centered conversation. It requires intentionality. Are Are you praying for opportunities to share with someone the good news of the story of the gospel that's captured your heart? Are are you praying specifically for co-workers and family members by name so that one day, decades from now, when someone asks them, who did God use to, to share with you the good news of the gospel, that in his sovereign plan they would write your name, not because you are a savior, not because there's something special in you, but God in his providential uh, uh, hand used you to be a vessel, an ambassador, to intentionally share with someone the hope that resides in you. Jesus shared intentionally 
But more than that, Jesus shared this morning conversationally. Look again with me in John chapter 4, starting in verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink for me, a woman of Samaria? So that goes back to the, to the rivalry between the Israelites and the Samaritans here. Notice that uh, John says parenthetically, if you don't know all that history, for Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. Then in verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Notice what Jesus does here in verse 12. The woman says, are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, and did his, as did his sons and his livestock. And this is the transition in verse 13. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of this water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. This is is a scandalous conversation. It's scandalous on a, on a couple of, of notes. One, Jesus, a first century rabbi, is talking to a, a woman. There was a phrase that was used in the first century that was called bruised and bleeding Pharisees. And the Pharisees were so uh, legalistic in their desire for purity that oftentimes when a woman was passing them, they would close their eyes lest they be tempted to sin and they would run into things. They would be walking and they'd be the bruised and bleeding Pharisees. And so that Jesus is talking to this woman in broad daylight would have gone in contradiction to what had been the the previous practice and the common practice of most rabbis in the first century. But more than that, this is a woman who has had scandal follow her to the well. There's more than just her physical need for water that's going to bring her to the well at 12 o'clock in the middle of the day all by herself. There's an emotional isolation. There's a physical isolation. You see, this is what we know uh, about this well, is that women would come in groups. Why? Because they needed protection. They would come early in the morning or they'd come late in the afternoon. Why would they do that? Because it was cooler early in the morning, later in the afternoon. This woman comes at the middle of the day, the hottest part of the day. Why is it? Because there's a scarlet letter upon her. We're going to find out that she has five husbands in her past. So this is a woman that is marginalized by the community. This is a woman who has emotional hurts and physical hurts, and she comes to this well longing for what only Jesus can provide for her. Not only physical needs, but emotional needs greater than that, spiritual needs. You see what Jesus does? He uses this well as a platform to talk to her about the hope of living water that only he can provide. He takes a physical need and he uses it as a springboard to point her to the spiritual provision of her need. This church gets this. The legacy of this church 
has realized this, and the present reality of this church is, is very much in, in the heartbeat of what Jesus is doing here, looking for physical needs as a platform to share the spiritual gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, you can look in the ministries that many of you are involved in, from Kids Connection to the Learning Center to the establishment of, of Empower Ministries. If you think about what is being done with Celebrate Recovery, that you can read about the opportunities right there in the together, the orphan care ministry that you can read about right there in the together. These things are done not just because this church says there are great humanitarian needs that need to be met by somebody and we need to do it. Well, that's not our charter. That's not our mission. It's not just for the sake of the needs of of human physical needs that we go to meet that. It's always not either or, but both and. We meet physical needs to ultimately have a platform to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's always a temptation to emphasize one or the other. Where the church says, we are going to be the social justice entity that meets physical needs and we never get around to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Or we are all about the gospel of Jesus Christ and the spiritual needs and we ignore the the real physical needs. Well, it's both and. It's not either or. There's a holistic ministry that this church in its history and its present and we pray in its future and the decades to come will always hold social justice and the gospel of Jesus Christ in equal hands saying that she needs physical water but Jesus ultimately says here is living water that will quench your every thirst. And a part of our task and our mission as a church is to see what are the physical needs of the people in our community that we can meet for the sake of telling them about the good news of Jesus Christ. It's not either or, it's both and. And in your life, there is a woman at the well that you will encounter in your own neighborhood, workplace. If you're a student in your classroom, there are people, all of us are affected by the fall, All of us are affected by the brokenness of humanity. There's no one in this sanctuary this morning that that doesn't know true woundedness and hurt and sin. We are, as Henry Nouwen says, wounded healers. And out of our woundedness that is met by the provision of Jesus Christ, so we enter into the brokenness of humanity, we enter into broken marriages, to broken promises, to broken hopes, careers that are dashed, educational needs, poverty needs, we enter into this in relationships to hopefully provide a platform that allows us to point them not to our good works, as Jesus would say in the Sermon on the Mount, but to our Father in heaven. Jesus has a conversation with this woman. Who is that woman in your life? It very well may be a sister. It very well may be a sister 
for you here this morning. If everyone may be a neighbor here this morning, if everyone may be that person that's in your third period Spanish class that sits in the very back, if everyone may be that kid that is new to the school, that God is calling you to see beyond the difficulty or the challenge or the, or the pain that they experience, to be able to meet them, to talk with them, to love them, to build a relationship with them for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus shares intentionally Jesus shares conversationally, and Jesus shares honestly. Notice in this passage here what Jesus does. Because oftentimes we think in our gospel conversations that we need to tell someone without offending them. We, we need to talk about a Savior without talking about sin. We don't want to offend anybody talking about sin. Notice, how Je- notice Jesus' rhetorical strategy here. John chapter 4, verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. Now, this is, I mean, Jesus is peering into her heart. The infinite God who knows all, the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You're right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. Jesus doesn't sugarcoat sin. He doesn't excuse sin. He confronts her in her pain and her hurt. I mean, long before that country music song, this woman at the well was looking for love in all the wrong places. She was looking for love in way too many faces. Jesus said, five of them, counting six, your living boyfriend. Now, notice what Jesus does here. He, He speaks to her about her brokenness. She didn't know Anselm. She didn't know anything about trying to fill a God-shaped void in her life. But she's doing it with relationships, isn't she? And, and, and your friend is doing it with their career. Your friend is doing it with, uh, with, with relationships. Your friend is doing it with pleasure. Your friend is doing it with materialism. Your neighbor is doing it with Islam. Your neighbor is doing it with Buddhism. Uh, so we're all trying to fill this God-shaped void with something. And so it is our call, as Jesus does here, to point this woman at the well to the true source of hope, the one that can provide her with the water that will quench all of her thirst. And what Jesus doesn't do is he doesn't offer her cheap grace. He doesn't say to her, you know, I I just want to sort of improve your life. Rather, he is calling her from from repentance to faith in him. He, like Bonhoeffer, in the wonderful book called The Cost of Discipleship, is calling her to a costly grace. Remember these words in Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book called The Cost of Discipleship? Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Jesus peers into her hurt. He peers into her heart. He peers into her past. And ultimately, she must make a decision. In John chapter 4, verses 25 through 26, we read, The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So this conversation, it leads to a confrontation of of her need, but ultimately it leads to a decision that she must make. 
Is Jesus, in the words of C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, is, is Jesus a liar? Is he a lunatic? Or will he be my Lord? This conversation moves to the crescendo of decision. Either Jesus is lying about this, he's insane, or he is my Lord. And our conversations will, in God's providence, lead someone, whether it be a son or a daughter, a cousin, an aunt or an uncle, a friend, a co-worker or a neighbor, in his timing to that point of decision. And this is important truth for you to know and for me to know. Because many of us do not share our faith because we have false understandings of what it means to share our faith. We think that sharing our faith is making someone accept a, 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 a long list of truths and signing the line. And, and if we could convince them with our rhetoric, if we could sell them. So oftentimes evangelism is, is sort of like a door-to-door salesman uh, selling something that people don't actually need. But in actuality, this is the greatest need of any person's life, and it is not your responsibility nor my responsibility to save that person. It is not in your purview of responsibility to make your son or daughter become a believer. You can't do that. Faith is a gift given by God. Your responsibility is just to be an ambassador. We must leave conversion to the only one who can convert, and that is God the Father through the power of his Son and the Holy Spirit. So you are freed to be an ambassador. You are free to be one who delivers the package of the gospel. It was kind of interesting. This is like eight years ago. Our oldest son, we asked him, what do you want to be for Halloween one year? And he didn't say football player, he didn't say soccer player, he didn't say Superman or the Flash or whatever. He said, I want to be a UPS man, which was very peculiar in a lot of ways. Okay, so eight years ago, I would say UPS knocked on our door at least once a week, maybe two times a week. Amazon through UPS. So my son, who was at home at that time, he saw the UPS man a lot during that season of his life. So for Halloween, he dressed up as, as a UPS man. Now think about UPS. UPS ha- has a mandate to deliver a package to the destination. But that UPS man, he, he rings the doorbell or she knocks upon the door, but they don't wait to force you to open the package. They don't even wait necessarily to see if you're home to open the door. Their role is to deliver the package to the destination, and then everything else is out of their hands. You see, oftentimes in your thoughts of evangelism, you think, I've got to deliver the package, and then I've got to bust down the door, and then I've got to get that person to open it, and then I've got to get that person to be saved, but that's not your responsibility. Your mandate, your commission, my mandate, my commission is ultimately to be faithful in delivering the good news of the gospel, allowing the Holy Spirit to do what he does, and that is the saving of souls. So my question, are you faithful in delivering the good news of the gospel? Are are you praying intentionally for those doors that you need to knock 
upon. Not, not literally, but figuratively. Those doors that God has called you, it very well may be a neighbor, but it very well may be someone in your own house that God is calling you to have intentional, prayerful, gospel-centered conversations. Are you praying? Who's on your list that you are praying for that God would give you the opportunities to share with? More than that, are you equipped to share that good news? Well, can I tell you, this preacher first and foremost, all of us can grow in being equipped to share the good news of the gospel. None, none of us get to a place and say, well, I've got that. I know everything that I need to know about that, but rather, we're all called to grow in intentional preparation for the opportunities that God would give us to share the greatest story ever told. And to that end, in your together, you will see an invitation. And it's an invitation not to a program. It's an invitation not to just a fall emphasis, but it is an invitation to what I pray is at the very heartbeat of our culture in the days and the years to come upon us, uh, drawing upon the rich tradition of this church to be intentionally evangelistic. We invite you to this training to pray intentional, but prepare intentionally on Wednesday evenings and Sundays in the fall and beyond called The Story. The story is the package that we are called to faithfully deliver. It's four chapters, creation, fall, rescue, and restoration. It's the story of the gospel. It's not first and foremost your story, but it is the story of what God has done and how it has impacted your life. Do you know that each chapter of the story of the gospel, it really answers four primary questions that every person asks. Whether that person is an atheist, whether that person is a Buddhist, whether that person is a Christian, all of us ask foundational questions like this. Where am I from? Where's home? Do you know that's a story or that's a question that is answered in creation? Do you know that we ask the question, all people ask the question, what are the difficulties that we have faced in life? You know, that is, a, that is a chapter that all of us have to walk through. And we have to answer that question. And you know, the story of the fall helps ground us and help us understand what it means to face difficulty in our life. Do you know every person is going to ask and have to answer in their own life, where do I look for hope? Where do I put my hope in? For some, it is relationships. For some, it is our health. For some, it is our intellect. For some, it is the physicality of, of whatever we might be doing in that moment or pleasure. But all of us will ask and all of us will answer, where do I look for hope? And finally, all of us will ask and all of us will answer, what does the future hold? And so what I have before you is an intentional, an intentional training that I hope that you would commit to, whether it be on a Sunday night or a Wednesday evening, so that you would be prepared to tell the story and how the story of the gospel intersected your life. And the reason that we emphasize that is for the decades to come when someone asks who shared with you the good news of the gospel, that they in the providence of God would write your name on their sheet of paper. Do you know who I'm talking about? I'm talking about your 
grandchildren. You know who I'm talking about? I'm talking about your sons and daughters. You know who I'm talking about? I'm talking about our neighbors. You know who I'm talking about? I'm talking about our co-workers. Do you know who I'm talking about? I'm talking about those that God has providentially allowed our shoulders to rub up against. Why? In his providential will that we would be vessels and ambassadors to share with them the greatest story ever told, the story of creation, fall, rescue, and restoration. It is the story that will quench every one of our thirst. Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you for your word, a word that speaks to our hearts. We pray that we'd be intentional, prayerful, thinking even today, who have you given us the opportunity to be a witness to, not only through our words, but through our life, but not less than our words. We know that people do not come to know you by looking at the stars and discerning from the stars that you sent your son to die for them. We know today that none of us are here in this room as believers because we, we saw a sunset and that sunset pointed us to the cross and the resurrection. Someone told us this good news. And we thank you, God, for the people that we wrote down on our list today. We thank you for their boldness. We thank you for their courage. We thank you for their faithfulness. And you are calling us as we've received that baton to pass that baton to those that you would call us to intersect with. May you find us as a family of faith faithful to share the greatest story ever told. Thank you that someone shared it with us. Thank you that you empower us through the guidance of your Holy Spirit to share with those, even today, that you have brought to mind. It's in your name we pray, the saving name of Christ.